This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the awards season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Richard Lawson, and I'm here with Rebecca Ford. Hello. And David Canfield. Hi. Uh, later on in this episode, we're going to hear our colleague Hillary Busis do an interview with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who directed Tick, Tick, Boom, which seems to be playing well thus far. But before we get into that, and before we get into new Thanksgiving week releases, I thought we could take a look back at this past weekend, particularly at the, I guess, lackluster-ish box office for King Richard, the Will Smith starring uh, movie about Richard Williams and Serena Williams and Venus Williams. You know, I think the number was 5.7 million in over 3,000 screens, which, yes, isn't great. But then you take a look at the fact that, well, it's also an HBO Max and it's a, a smaller movie that they hope will grow over the weeks. So I don't know. Uh, Rebecca, do you think we should be worried about King Richard based on this first weekend out? I don't. I think it's sort of unfair to compare box office numbers to the days of pre-pandemic, you know? I mean, we all know that Warner Brothers has decided to release everything on HBO Max. And when we're talking about sort of this adult drama genre, I think that feels like one that people are going to choose to watch those movies at home, you know? I mean, we're still in a pandemic. People are still not super comfortable going to theaters. And if you can, watch it at home. Uh, you know, I just see a lot of people turning towards that choice. Yeah, I think of all of their offerings this year, this this is the one that would be the most at-home friendly for a lot of people. I have a lot of family members who I know watched it over the weekend and enjoyed it, um, which I can't say for all of Warner Brothers movies this year. So I do think that, that it's my guess that that was, that was a more of a dent in its box office than the others uh, that they've had on a slate, but I guess we'll see. It would be nice, I mean, if Warner would sort of release some of those HBO Max numbers. I mean, none of these streaming services really do that uh, currently, but I feel like that would help paint a full picture for us. Wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> <laughs> One number I saw pointed to in a couple box office reports was that Green Book came out you know, around Thanksgiving in its year, had a really soft kind of opening and then went on to make, you know, I think it was over $300 million worldwide. Mm. So I think there might be, not that they're comparable films really, but um, they are more crowd pleasing than they are difficult or artistically alienating. Um, so they share that at least. And, and, you know, so maybe there's a slow build for uh, King Richard that can happen. And it seems to be based at least on the Warner's executives or 
spokespeople that box office uh, journalists spoke to, that that's kind of what their hope is, that it'll just be the kind of slow and steady thing, because it's a long road between now and, well, financial success, but also potential Oscar success. I do think uh, word of mouth could really help this film. I mean, the reviews have been very positive and, you know, we all liked it. And I think everyone who sees it uh, really enjoys it. So I, I could see that being, uh, you know, a potential to, to have a really long, healthy run. And it's playing well where it needs to play well. And I think right now that's all that matters. And, and how we think about box office um, at the Oscars going forward this, this year might be kind of a litmus test to see how much of an impact it can even have anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. There was a little Twitter dust up this weekend where I, I don't know, she's a professor or something in, in the UK, tweeted a couple things about how she was frustrated that King Richard was all about the dad and not about Venus and Serena. Um, and and it tried to make it into this sort of political issue. So that kind of looked like maybe one of the first big backlashy attempts at, at, you know, kind of coming for King Richard's crown, so to speak. And the response to that tweet was pretty effusively, you know, against <laughs> that sentiment. Yes. Um, so it seems like the film, you know, already has its fair share, not just of fans, but of people like really willing to go to back to defend it, which is which is an interesting and probably healthy thing for it to have right now at this point. Yeah. Well, uh, so let's look forward to what's coming out this week. I think for our purposes, maybe the biggest wide release is House of Gucci, um, the Ridley Scott film starring Lady Gaga, Adam Driver, Jared Leto, Al Pacino, Jeremy Irons, Salma Hayek. I'm forgetting some people. And we talked about it a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago because we were the social embargo had lifted. But now the full embargo is li- has lifted. So I'm going to ask you, David, what do you think of House of Gucci for real this time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not a particular fan of House of Gucci. I, I don't think it's a very good movie. It doesn't mean to say I didn't enjoy parts of it or um, didn't. it didn't feel as long to me as certain other movies this season, which I think I said before as well. But I, I feel like in the last hour, it devolves into something it should not be, and it underserves Lady Gaga and her character in the process. And it ends with a bizarre series of footnotes that... <laughs> make me question what kind of movie they thought they were making to begin with. Um, I think that certain claims that this is a sort of intentionally bulky, over-the-top satire only go so far in in the context of the actual movie. And some of those claims have confused me a little bit because I think a lot of it ends up being really stiff and dry in the end and um, not in a way I was expecting or wanted. So that's that's where I'm at. Rebecca, where do you fall on, on the Gucci of it all? I think I tweeted this, but I fall in the I love mess uh, category where, like, (laughs) I thought it was very fun to watch and, like, just totally embraced that all these actors are basically in different movies and, uh, you know, some of them are just doing their natural British accents and um, it's just, like, totally bonkers. So if we're talking awards, I'm not sure, but I do think people are going to to kind of enjoy it. I mean, I loved watching Lady Gaga. I agree with David that you kind of miss her when you get to the last third of the film. And I will say as a random litmus test, I was at the um, playground with a mom's group and this was the movie all the moms were excited to see. So I feel like there's an anticipation for it and just to like see something fun. So, um, you know, I, I enjoyed it because of the best, I guess, is my yeah. answer. <laughs> the true litmus test for the moms will be whether they can convince enough family members to make that their Thanksgiving 
yeah. weekend movie yeah. choice, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the box office for the film feels a little very much up in the air. Um, obviously, Ridley Scott just had a pretty much flop with The Last Duel just a, you know, a month ago, two months ago. I think Gucci will probably do better, but... Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with both of you in terms of I like the mess. I also was disappointed by the film. But a weird thing that's happened since I saw it, and I walked out of the theater with a friend, and we were both kind of just like, well, there was this that we liked, but the story didn't come together the way we wanted it to. We feel like they omitted a lot, um, bizarrely. But the more that I've seen early reactions to it trend toward the negative, I've felt this strange and unexpected knee-jerk impulse to defend it. <laughs> mm. And I and I think where that's coming from is that I like a movie like this where at least in the acting department, not so much in screenplay or the filmmaking, but the actors at least are really making big swings. And I mean all the way to Jared Leto, who is doing something so ridiculous that I <laughs> saw one critic uh, kind of go after it for sort of being offensive to Italians. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't, as a sort of half-quarter Italian-American, I don't know if I fully am on board with that uh, argument, but but even in, in the Leto thing, which, you know, he's getting some some attention from people who've seen the movie already um, in, in a positive way. Yeah, I, there's something that I admire about how splashy and silly everyone is willing to be. Uh, and it's almost as if they are fighting the sort of inertia of what Ridley Scott is doing, which is more slow and studied and... He tries to really steer away from the fabulous ridiculousness of it all when there was so much of that in the real story. And that's the question that I have about the the, the filmmaking is like, why would you, when you have these crazy performances, why would you then try to mute the story? And when you get to the end and there's those title cards explaining what happened, you're just like, well, that would have been 30 minutes of a better film if we'd seen all that happen. Yeah, yeah no, I completely agree with that. I think to Rebecca's point, Lady Gaga does so much to make this movie enjoyable. (laughs) Um, She's genuinely great. And um, to me, I think you'd said this before, Richard, but really proves uh, she's an actor to stay. You know, this is, this is not um, the sort of disappointing follow-up to the debut performance that we've seen before. It's a really completely different at times, really wild and surprising performance that um, really carried the movie for me whenever she was in it. Uh, And I just missed her when she wasn't in it. One thing that House of Gucci mirrors um, with A Star is Born is that in both films, we have these early stretches where Lady Gaga is playing a woman who's falling in love. Uh, In this case, she's falling in love with Maurizio Gucci, played by Adam Driver. And she's so good at that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, obviously people make the comparison between Gaga and Cher. Both are, you know, over the top pop stars. Both, uh, you know, have acting careers. Cher, you know, has an Oscar for acting in Moonstruck. Um, and watching House of Gucci and thinking about those early scenes in Star is Born, I think that Gaga could lean more into the share thing. Do that big, you know, sort of John Patrick Shanley-esque romantic comedy, you know. I would see her do 10 romantic comedies or, or, or at least romantically tinged films because that energy she's so good at tapping into. And, and when that sort of wanes as House of Gucci meanders on and it becomes more about this marriage that's collapsing and perhaps her character going a little insane uh, to some extent. Um, we, I, I missed that sparkle. And I think that there's a way to sustain that for a whole movie. So I hope that whatever notices that movie is getting, or that Gucci's getting, that Gaga won't be discouraged from acting because I think there's real potential there. It's been a long time since we've had like a reliably go-to romantic comedy actor. Hmm. I would love to see it. Yeah, I think, I think her agent's going to owe you her 10%. I think that's a great advice. <laughs> 
you know, and there could always be singing. We like to have music in movies now. There's the trailer out for the new Jennifer Lopez, mm-hmm. Owen Wilson movie um, that has a ridiculous premise, but seems fun. I don't know. I, I would love to see, you know, uh, there was that movie... Um, Oh, I'm forgetting it with Tracy Ellis Ross and Dakota Johnson. Oh, the high note. The high note, which I thought was so nice. And um, I just feel like that would be a good wheelhouse for Gaga. And when she, you know, if she wants to pursue the Oscar again, she can do it because she's capable of dramatic stuff. But I think the first stretches of Gucci are light and playful, and she's really good at that. Um, and so, yes, Rebecca, um, if her agent's listening, please take my call. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Marry Me. It's kind of like the opposite problem with J-Lo, who very occasionally proves that she's a great dramatic actress, um, but mostly does rom-coms like that. And I think Gaga kind of needs to prove she can, she can carry a movie like Marry Me, because I think she can, and we haven't seen that yet. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists— Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So you mentioned briefly Oscars, Rebecca, and I'm sort of torn about this. So I, I wrote a column for our special awards issue, the, the first the first issue that will be out I don't know, sometime in the next few weeks. And I kind of looked at the Best Picture frontrunners with a little bit of mentioning of actors who are maybe not in Best Picture contenders, but are themselves contenders in the acting categories. And the question of Gucci came up, because in my original draft, I hadn't included it at all. I'd seen the film and sort of determined that it was a long shot for anyone, even Gaga. Am I wrong about that? I feel like Gaga is a, a strong, likely inclusion at this point i didn't i didn't realize you were on the fence about her but i just feel like that is the one nomination i would assume is going to happen david where are you on it me too i would be surprised if she's not nominated although i can definitely see a scenario in which this is i mean i love hustlers i don't love house of gucci but i could see them maybe going a similar route And I could see Gaga hitting a lot of precursors and Academy members just not going for this movie, not going for this performance. I suppose there's a world in which that happens, but right now I I would definitely predict her pretty safely. The thing that makes me a little bit trepidatious about it is that, you know, one could call what she's doing in, in House of Gucci campy. 
Ridley Scott himself seems to be working against that camp, you know, so there's kind of a push against her even in the structure of the film. Um, And maybe some voters who are a little more allergic to campiness than others will sort of sense that intent from the director and and kind of follow his orders and be like, "Eh, you know, this isn't working. I mean, I think that Scott, uh, you know, supports Lady Gaga's performance, but... um, yeah, just an interesting question of, you know, something like Rami Malek in um, Bohemian Rhapsody could also be called campy, but mm-hmm. it's a different scale, unfortunately, when you're talking about men, I think. Um, and speaking of the men, I don't think Leto or Pacino or anybody, or even Driver, like, that's probably a non-starter, right? I just yeah. don't, I don't see, I, I think Leto is probably too divisive. I think Pacino, I just don't see passion being stirred up there, and, and same for Driver, these categories are filling up pretty quickly, and I, I just don't see those going the distance. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I also wonder a little bit if they're not the same performance at all, but they're both playing real-life people in sort of splashy movies. Like, I wonder if, like, if Kidman somehow—Nicole Kidman for being the Ricardo somehow gets in the way of Gaga's chances for, I guess we could call being the Gucci's. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as more contenders reveal themselves, and I think if you figure Olivia Coleman is is at least nominated for The Lost Daughter and um, Kristen Stewart for Spencer, then you know these spots get start getting taken up, and and it is completely feasible that something like House of Gucci proves not to be able to withstand that. Well, at least we can all be on record in saying, I mean, or at least I will go on record in saying, I hope she gets nominated. I think she's really good in the movie, campiness or not, or, or even campiness included. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to see. I'll be very curious to see how it plays this weekend. Um, you know, there are a lot of things competing with it um, that are maybe a little bit more like a general family consensus on what movie to see. But maybe those moms will win out. I hope they do. Um, <laughs> another movie that would probably be a harder sell for most families that's opening in limited release this week is Licorice Pizza from Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, which we spoke a little bit about last week. But there are more reviews out now. And uh, it feels like every kind of guildy screen they've done in this movie has played incredibly well uh the reviews have been pretty effusive mine was a little more mixed and i see you know paths to screenplay and all that for licorice pizza but i'm I'm curious about alana heim and if she uh in a very confusing maybe supporting category for her that's a weird year this year for supporting um does alana heim have an oscar potential narrative for this film rebecca um, I would love to see Alana Haim nominated. I feel like that performance was so phenomenal and so strong. And, you know, obviously she's a familiar name in the music community, but this is her first big acting gig. And since she, she I believe, is going lead actress, she is competing against the names we've just been talking about, you know, Gaga and Kidman and, and Olivia Coleman. So uh, I think it'll be a really long road for her to get a slot, but um, I definitely think she deserves it. I think you have to see if that film becomes a real overall frontrunner, which is conceivable at this point, just given how well it seems to be playing and and how there isn't really a movie like that in the race right now, um, at least among the top contenders. So that that I'm curious about, but I, I agree with Rebecca. I, I, I just wonder if Best Actress is too competitive already. Um, but I thought she was extraordinary in the movie. Such an exciting debut. Um, so I, I hope... I hope she picks up maybe a few critics awards, things like that, that give her a little bit of momentum. She would definitely need something like that mm-hmm. to just get to just get some kind of campaign going, some kind of place in the conversation. Because as we were just talking about with Gaga, when you have all these big names uh, taking up space, it, it just gets harder and harder to even find a lane. 
One thing that's so fascinating about Alana's presence in the film, as well as Cooper Hoffman's to some extent, although he's his father was a known entity, Cooper Hoffman not so much, but watching Alana in it, you're like, oh, this is great. He just found this this unknown actor to play this role and she really feels like a real person. And then you're like, no, she's in a very successful band. <laughs> like, like she is unto her own self famous, but like because this is her first, this is her first like real acting role, correct? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, she just, it, it's very natural in a way that this movie demands. And I think that, you know, it works really well. And whether or not that gets the attention of the Academy, I think it will definitely get the attention of critics groups. The movie was too expensive, I believe, to qualify for Indie Spirits or anything like that, um, or Gotham's, I guess. So um, that they won't have that little little foothold to place. But um, yeah, Critics Awards, I think, for sure. But a very famous person in the movie um, is Bradley Cooper, who plays the hairstylist turned Barbra Streisand's boyfriend turned producer, who is sort of infamous in, in L.A. or in Hollywood for mm-hmm. his outsized personality and antics. Um, and, you know, Cooper is only in a couple scenes of the film, but they're very dynamic ones. And I was talking with a colleague um, this past weekend about supporting actor, which is very strange. And he was really gung-ho on Cooper, not just getting a nomination, but potentially winning because it's such a vibrant standout performance where you kind of miss him when he leaves the movie. It was my friend crazy, David, or is that actually something that you could see happening? I think the friend might be a little crazy. (laughs) (laughs) No offense to the friend. I think the structure of the movie, one of the reasons I love the movie is you have these two characters moving through these series of Hollywood tall tales, for lack of a better way of of putting it, and, and these really wild experiences with these, you know, insane backdrops. And a lot of times the backdrops and the background noise are famous people like um, Sean Penn or Bradley Cooper or Tom Waits. And it's something that works about it. But in my experience watching the film, it also prevents those performances from fully popping almost intentionally, where they're really fun. Um, but they're fun as part of the experience you're having with these two central characters. And that was my experience with with Bradley Cooper in the movie, was it felt like an extended, extremely fun cameo and not much more than that. And I didn't miss him as much um, personally when when he left. But that, I think it's just a challenge in terms of the structure of the movie that he he feels like so removed from it in a lot of ways. Um, certainly short scenes have gotten triple Oscars before. We have seen that. Uh, sh- short screen time, I should say. Um, so I wouldn't rule it out, but it just doesn't feel like, especially with him not campaigning for it, it doesn't feel like something that would go that far. Yeah, I felt the same. And, and you know, he obviously is the lead in Nightmare Alley, so... Bradley Cooper doesn't do much campaigning, but if he was, I feel like that's where he'd put his um, energy. Um, and it, yeah, it's just a little too short. I, you know, even when Sean Penn shows up, you're just like, it's so brief that it it wasn't quite enough time to stick with you, I think. And yeah, for me, I just wanted to keep watching Alana and Cooper Hoffman in every moment. So it's right. almost like they overshadow um, these little supporting visits. My one thought about Cooper was that a lot of members of the Academy, especially the older ones, probably have had run-ins with John Peters, or at least are very aware <laughs> mm-hmm. of him. Yeah. And so they might get a kick out of seeing someone kind of skewer him a bit. But he does also, at the same time, feel like he's popped in from a different Paul Thomas Anderson movie that's shooting down the street. You know, <laughs> like, we'll get the John Peters PTA movie in some years time, um, but he's just kind of like making a little cameo in this one. So yeah, it might not be substantial enough. And unlike 
say Judy Dench, he's not playing the Queen of England, which helped her win for very little screen time. But yeah, Rebecca, you mentioned Nightmare Alley, which is one of the few remaining potential awards movies that I don't believe any of us have seen. Um, my One of my remaining ones is Don't Look Up, which I'm seeing, that we're recording on a Monday, I'm seeing it tonight. But David and Rebecca, you have both seen Don't Look Up, and I know that the review embargo is not till up till December, but I believe the social embargo has lifted. So in a light social sense, <laughs> Rebecca, what did you think of Don't Look Up? Or what, what, what is it an Oscar-y movie? Because I kept hearing from people who'd seen it early that it was not Oscar-y at all, but that tune seems to be changing. Yeah, we had heard that too, that it was just like a a McKay comedy that wouldn't be a contender, but I, I I don't think that's true. It definitely feels more in the the vice vein, I guess. And you know that movie wasn't beloved, but did get quite a few nominations. And and I feel like that's where we're at with this one. I thought the performances are so enjoyable to watch. Leo and uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Mark Rylance especially are are really really great in this film. Um, you know, I I left it kind of mixed um, in the end. I mean, McKay is, you know, very clearly trying to get people to pay attention to the climate crisis. Uh, and in the in the screening we went to, there was a Q&A after with McKay and Leo and Jennifer Lawrence and Meryl Streep. And, and you know, Leo and McKay talked most of the time about the climate crisis. And it's very important, but also... When someone is watching who is of that belief already, you know, like I am, it's really hard to watch the movie because it touches a lot on sort of the uh, the, the politicizing we've seen of the pandemic and of the climate crisis. So it's to me, it felt a little too raw um, to, to, to feel those feelings as we're still going through them. Um, so maybe may my own experience that was tough. But again, I, I could see performance and screenplay. And, and obviously, his the editing is always amazing with these films. So I think there will be some some nominations from it. it it's, it's a little bit of vice and there's a little bit of big short in it as well. And in, in terms of it being this very, very broad comedy that shifts kind of abruptly into this very, very dark movie. Mm-hmm. In this case, about the end of the world. Um, and I think for people who like McKay's movies in, in this vein, it doesn't feel like a departure, which should bode well for his Oscar chances, I would think, since he got director, screenplay, and picture nominations for both of those films. Uh, and this one is even starrier, and it feels even bigger in a lot of ways. I cannot see this not being a huge hit on Netflix, just given the star wattage and the, um, I think, accessible nature of, of what it's talking about. Um, but again, it, it just depends on how much you like Adam McKay movies um, in this vein. And I think uh, I was also pretty mixed on it. I thought DiCaprio particularly was really great. Um, he has a kind of Howard Beale-esque moment uh, midway through the movie that he really earns and that the movie earns. Um, and that, that really was the dramatic high point for me. Um, and Mark Rylance, as Rebecca said, is so great. And um, some other supporting performances that are that don't get to pop as much but are really fun, um, like Kate Blanchett, is really great. So I have a feeling it's going to rack up a lot of nominations. I would, I would, to be honest, I'd be surprised if it didn't. I mean, sight unseen, it feels like the kind of thing where Meryl Streep just kind of waltzes in and picks up a nomination and waltzes off, you know, like, I I don't know. I don't know how big a part she is, but um, she has the screen time and I'll leave it. at Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, You know, and I think one thing, uh, again, I haven't seen it yet, but like I've I saw some early reactions and some of them included uh, a sentiment that I think you kind of expressed, Rebecca, which is that like this is kind of like 
McKay's past two political films, it's like, who is the audience for this? You know, like the people in theory who are going to go see this movie or watch it on Netflix in this case, probably already are in line with the movie's uh, ideology and thus maybe the movie won't feel as effective. At the same time, though, the Academy is a choir that loves to be preached to, you know, and and, uh, even if Don't Look Up doesn't have like, doesn't change a climate denier's mind or whatever, if it makes its messaging robust enough for the people who already agree with it, that might be all that counts. It burns with a righteous fury that wants you to know it is very righteous. Yeah. Well, if anyone wants to read more about Don't Look Up, in particular, its star, Jennifer Lawrence, um, our cover issue uh, with Jennifer Lawrence uh, just dropped. The story is written by Karen Valby. It's a really good read with lots of interesting stuff from Lawrence about, you know, her sort of retreat from fame and her tentative re-entering mainstream movie stardom. So yeah, the article is live now on VF.com. The issue should be out, I think, in the next week or so. Um, So definitely pick one up or go read it online because it's a really good read. And I thought a very, in a subtle way, endorsement for the film without it kind of beating the drum for this big Netflix movie that probably doesn't need much drum beating. But it made me excited to see it. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. All right, so now let's hear from Hilary Busis, uh, who had a chat with Lin-Manuel Miranda, who directed a passion project of his, which is Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom. The movie stars Andrew Garfield. We've already raved about it on this podcast. You can read my rave review of it on VF.com. But now let's hear from at least one of the sources in Lin-Manuel Miranda. I've read some interviews uh, where you spoke about your history with Rent and with the work of Jonathan Larson. Um, I saw that you uh, wrote your first musical after you saw Rent when you were a teenager. Yeah, I started writing In the Heights about two years after I saw Rent. And, you know, the themes do rhyme. Uh, You know, I saw this musical about this community fighting gentrification uh, using contemporary music uh, to tell the story. And that's exactly what I tried to do with my community in Upper Manhattan uh, within the Heights. It was a a one-to-one ratio of inspiration. Well, there are, there are a few differences, maybe. but And then uh, you saw Tick, Tick, Boom uh, a few years later when that was off-Broadway. Um, and tell me about how that also influenced you, just that production, the first time you saw it. Yeah, well, listen, uh, Jonathan Larson has inspired me to try to write musicals, and now I'm a senior at Wesleyan University, and I'm studying theater, and here's this off-Broadway posthumous production of Tick, Tick, Boom, starring the brilliant Raul Esparza, channeling Jonathan Larson in his own way. And the whole show was a sneak preview of what my 20s were going to be. It felt like a direct message to me in the 10th row of the audience being like, hey, Lynn, this is going to be harder than you think. And that very pretty girl sitting next to you is not going to go into acting. She's going to get a real job. And your friends who are all studying uh, theater or film are going to grow up and find other roads to happiness that are not this thing. And you're going to be the only one banging your head against the wall of this childhood dream. And the world is going to tell you no over and over and over again. Do you really want to do this? 
knowing that the world will probably not notice what you're making in your lifetime? And my answer to that was yes. And it strengthened my resolve, but it asked all the questions that I needed to, I needed asked of myself at that moment in my life. And um, I saw it three times. I saw it three times at the Jane Street Theater. And I even tried to, I, I fantasized about doing sort of an illegal production for my senior thesis. You know, you can't license the rights when the show's just come out. Um, but I really thought about going in there and taking notes. Uh, I had such a passionate response to it. Yeah, it just, it really sort of strengthened my resolve that I'm, I want to spend my time this way. And, you know, it, it may not happen for me, but I, I have to try because I do love sitting at a piano and, and writing songs uh, just as, as Jonathan did. And watching it, did you ever think this would make a great movie? I mean, it is maybe not the most intuitive thing to turn into a movie, uh, a three-person no, show. No, it's not. And, and you know who really deserves the credit uh, for seeing that is, is Julie O. Julie O um, was someone I had met briefly um, in the time when Heights was being shopped around from studio to studio. I met her the, as a young executive then, and she came to me in 20. 16 and said, I have the film rights to Tick, Tick, Boom, and I have the blessing of Julie Larson and the Larson estate. And as soon as I got that email, two things happened at the same time. One, I realized that Jonathan performing this as a rock monologue with a rock band could be the frame uh, that, that told the whole story. And Two, I replied faster than I've ever replied to an email in my life. I said, I'm the only person who can direct this movie. I've never directed a movie, but if I know anything, it's what it feels like to try to get a show on in your 20s, uh, what it feels like to have the weight of your own expectations and a show in your head and the gulf between the musical only you can hear and the things that need to go right for anyone else to hear it. I understood that pressure. And so um, I, I'll always be grateful for her to for seeing that because as, she, as soon as she saw it, uh, she showed it to me and I saw it. Mm -hmm. And was this after you had uh, performed in Tick, Tick, Boom itself on stage? Uh, I, I performed yeah. in Tick, Tick, Boom in 2014. And it really is, in hindsight, was a crossroads in my career. It's about a musical. It's about a musical songwriter at a crossroads. And at that moment, it was a few months before we'd start rehearsals on Hamilton. So I was super pregnant with Hamilton. Um, my wife was super pregnant with our first child who would be born two weeks before rehearsals started for Hamilton. Um, and I was performing the show with two collaborators from my past and my future, Karen Olivo, who was my co-lead in In the Heights, and Leslie Odom Jr., who was my future co-lead uh, in, in Hamilton. So it really, in hindsight, it's like this crazy midpoint uh, in my career where I'm, I'm between the past and the present. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that does mirror the way that Jonathan is in between, you know, giving up on Susperia, which he's been working on for eight years, and then finally realizes it's not going to go anywhere and then starts working on rent. Right. A hundred percent. And the other thing that I took away from that production, more than the production itself, which was directed by Oliver Butler and was a really just joyous experience. And I'm forever grateful to Janine Tesori, who curates Encores Off Center for believing I could do it, was um, going from backstage to the post-show reception 
and meeting all the real figures in Jonathan's life. It was like the last scene in Big Fish for me. It was like, hello, I'm Matt. I was Jonathan's best friend. Hello, I was Jonathan's girlfriend. I'm meeting all of his best friends, seeing his family. Um, both his parents were still alive then. Alan, Nan Larson were there. And you realized very powerfully, tick, tick, boom, is less complicated for the survivors of Jonathan Larson. Whenever Tick, Tick, Boom is being performed, Jonathan is back and he's singing about them and he's singing about his loved ones and his community. And it was such a wonderful place to be. And I knew that if we got to make this movie, I could lean on the resources of those people for whom keeping Jonathan's memory alive is so important. Um, and and I got a really well-rounded picture from them. I, I sat down with everyone who was at that party in 2014. I sat down with Roger Bart, because if you watch any footage of Jonathan Larson performing Boho Days, his or, original rock monologue, you can see Roger Bart sitting in the back singing high harmonies. Um, oh. They were really close in the 80s. They were both starving artists and waiters together. They'd feed each other in their respective shifts. And... Um, one of the things he gave me was, I think, one of the most important insights into Jonathan, which was Jonathan could be impatient and he could be frustrating and he could be self-obsessed with his work. But when he was in a rehearsal room and he was teaching his songs to fellow actors, he was like light and happy and free. He said it was like watching a fish like re-entered re into the water. Um, it was like, oh, that's what Jonathan was put on this earth to do. And as long as he was doing that, he was in his happy place. And it was, everything else was a struggle to get to that happy place. Um, and that was a key insight for us in both the development of the screenplay and in my interactions with Andrew as he was embodying Jonathan. Yeah. And when you were, uh, you and Stephen Levinson were working on the script, was there anything that you learned about Jonathan going through his archives or talking to his loved ones that surprised you? The thing that I, I hope comes through in the movies is, is utter resilience. We read rejection letters from every major theater making body in New York and abroad. We read his recommendation letter from Stephen Sondheim. We clicked on a file called Jingles and found jingles he wrote for CNN, Lucky Charms, Irish Spring. <laughs> None of these were produced. He was not paid for any of them, but there was a time when he was trying to pay the rent uh, doing that. And actually, there's a scene in the movie where uh, Michael and John are driving in the car and his fake CNN uh, music is playing out of the radio. But yeah, I mean, honestly, what we wanted to do was paint as complete a picture uh, as possible because Jonathan in writing this was attempting to create a self-portrait of the artist as a young man. And, and our job was to round out that picture because when you're putting this on film, it's not just Jonathan embodying those characters for us or the three-person cast of the off-Broadway version. We have a chance to meet Rosa Stevens. We have a chance to meet Stephen Sondheim. We have a chance to meet John's parents. Uh, and our job is to paint a fuller picture than perhaps even Jonathan painted. And so... To that end, we really talked to the, those figures in his life. And, um, you know, it was important for me to find balance in those because Jonathan is a very unreliable narrator when he is performing this show. But I don't believe there's anything wrong with choosing to be a dancer that doesn't necessarily dance in New York. Yeah, I feel like the show from Susan's perspective is maybe like, I have this boyfriend who just cannot get his like shit together. <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent, and 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 you know it, there, there is um, there was a lot of 
uh, opportunity to flesh that out because, you know, if his girlfriend's a dancer, which she was, um, dancers hear a ticking of a clock way louder than anybody else. They are uh, entrusted with their own bodies as an instrument. And when that starts to go and when injuries start to pile up, they die twice. And so um, really kind of leaning into that and leaning into, you know, an artist can be an artist wherever they are in the world. That's Jonathan's shit that he needs to be in New York. And then the same is true of, of Michael. Um, one, I think that Sometimes in the casting of productions of Tick, Tick, Boom, I've seen, they always sort of cast someone who looks totally at home in the business world. It's always sort of like a Benny from Rent type. Mm -hmm. It was like, hey, like, check out my suit. Wearing a suit, yeah. Yeah, whereas I think, you know, when you get Robin DeJesus as Michael, you get, oh, that guy was definitely an artist. That guy is definitely an actor. He, it comes off him in waves, but he is someone who can bring his creative life to his work and and has health insurance and has um and and isn't living hand to mouth and there's nothing wrong with making those choices for your own safety and your own sanity and so again making these as more plausible roads that Jonathan could go down and find happiness if he so chose were it not for the calling that is that is somewhere inside him and the ticking mm. that is somewhere inside yeah. him. So, so Jonathan has this very kind of black and white worldview where kind of you're an artist or a sellout, but the movie you don't think is really taking that point of view. No, I think we wanted to provide opposing viewpoints because because a movie has more room for that. You know, um, when when Michael says, like, why can't I have those things? Like, look at the world we're living in. He's not wrong. And and we wanted to get out of the, the binary of there's artists and there's everyone else, um, because, you know, there's lots of different roads to happiness in this life. And most of us don't get to do what we love for a living. But I think a greater lesson of this is if you can find space for the thing you love, you will live a good life. And um, I know that there's another timeline where no one produces in the Heights. And I am an English teacher at Hunter College High School. And hopefully I'm inspiring lots of kids, but I know I'm writing songs at the end of the day because I would be doing that if no one was watching. Um, I was doing that when no one was watching. And so that's sort of the clarifying journey that Jonathan goes on. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I obviously have to ask you about Andrew Garfield. He's so amazing in this role. Um, besides his amazing Jonathan Larson hair, what was it that uh, made you believe that he was the only person for this part. He didn't have that hair when I when I when I met him. Um, and I, I well again I saw him in Angels in America, which by the way is also set around the same time as Tick Tick Boom. It's set uh, amidst the plague of the AIDS crisis. But Andrew Garfield is playing Prior in an eight-hour show in two parts, and he's giving everything and literally the endurance test on the body and on the voice. I just felt like that guy can do anything. Even though he hadn't sung before. Even though he hadn't sung before, I felt like if he wants to, he can learn that. And so I, I finagled my way into a sushi lunch with him. And when I asked him about singing, he said, it's something I'm, I have never done and I'm terrified to do, but have always wanted to explore. And then I knew we were fine because Andrew Garfield does whatever he needs to do to embody whatever character he's playing. I think if there's any through line in his work from stage and screen, it's him becoming whoever he needs to become. Um, and so um, my job was to give him the time and the resources to do that. And uh, I wanted to ask you also about a specific scene in the movie. Uh, this 
uh, is going to air after the movie's been out for a week um, and in theaters for a little bit longer. So I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about filming the Sunday sequence, which is this incredible collection of Broadway performers, legends and newer talents. And I mean, I just would love, you know, how did that come together just kind of from the beginning? Here's a lesson I, I I always believe in, like, what did you learn from the last thing you worked on and what do you bring that to the next one? And the lesson I learned on writing Hamilton was that, yes, the musical theater truism of the opening number establishing the rules of the world is important. You have to tell the audience how to experience this show and how does singing work and what are we watching? But I also learned on Hamilton that every number is an opportunity to renegotiate that relationship and crack it open a little more and bend the rules here. And, you know, on helpless and satisfied, I was like, okay, we reserve the right to play with time and rewind a moment if we need to, to tell you this story uh, with 10 dual commandments. It was like, all right, I know this seems super weird, but this was actually super common in the era in which this show is set. And here's how it worked. It was highly ritualized um, and establishing all those rules with every song and pushing on those rules so that by the time we get to the end of the show, we can literally stop time and we don't have to explain dueling. It's been, it's world building. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally, every song is an opportunity to world build. And, and I brought that into um, Tick Tick. And what I knew about Sunday was that it's his love letter to Stephen Sondheim and the creative process and, you know, the original Sunday in Sunday in the Park with George is this frenzy and cacophony of all the characters on stage and George freezes it. And in that moment, he assembles everyone into the tableau, which is his masterpiece. Jonathan only ever sang this alone at a piano with a rock band. And I have the opportunity as a filmmaker to fill that out as a choir, every bit as loud as the one at the end of Act One of Sunday in the Park with George. So... What is Jonathan Larson's dream choir? Uh, because this is Jonathan Larson's fantasy, very openly. And so I reached out to the figures that played an enormous role in Jonathan's creative life and Sondheim alums and other incredible theater alums that, you know, we, are, are the sort of legends that we're lucky enough to continue to create alongside. Um, and you got a cameo from Lin-Manuel Miranda. Well, that was last minute. I only jumped in. I only jumped in because the the person I had in that role backed out because of COVID, um, and so and I was already quarantined. So I was like, "Let me play it. We got to keep moving." But I'm not in the number proper um, because I never intended to be. But I also, as the kids say, I wanted Jonathan to have this like galaxy brain moment where he can kind of corral singers from the past, present, and future. Um, so there are future Rent collaborators that. He hasn't met yet, but they get to be in this number because he's having this transcendent galaxy brain moment. There's Beth Malone, who created the role of Big Al in Fun Home, which I believe is one of the great musicals of the modern era. There's two out of my three Skylar sisters. Um, and let's just make this like theater legend chorus so loud that Jonathan can hear it wherever he is. And then the final touch... I was hiring Michael Starabin, who was the orchestrator on the original Sunday in the Park with George, to orchestrate this number. Um, and, and so, again, like every detail was what would Jonathan Larson's dream moment of this be? Yeah, the moment where Bernadette Peters shows up feels like a real, everybody has to kind of stop and... Yes. <laughs> yeah, you start by asking Bernadette and you work backwards from there. <laughs> 
I and I'm glad that you mentioned Sondheim too. Uh, Bradley Whitford Sondheim is so uncanny. Like the the way that he holds his face is really. I mean, do you know if the actual Stephen Sondheim you know, gave his blessing for? Yeah, I was in touch. <laughs> with, I was in touch with Stephen Sondheim at every stage of this because it's it so much of Tick Tick Boom is a love letter to Sondheim. The way this movie is my love letter to Jonathan Larson. We're links in a chain in that regard, and we're so lucky that Sondheim is still around and creating new work at age ninety one. I showed him drafts of the script, and and the final kind of amazing thing was I finally got up the courage to send him a screener of the film. Um, he was gracious about his portrayal in the movie, but he said, I have one note, which is the final voicemail message to John. Um, if that line, I think you're going to have a very bright future, sounds very cliche. I don't think I would ever really say that to another artist. Can I rewrite it? Um, and I'll record the voice if you can't get the actor back. Uh, and I was like, oh, a rewrite from Sondheim. Gosh, I don't know. Um, and I said, yes, of course. And so Sondheim wrote his own final message uh, to John, which is poignant on several levels, um, and then sent me a voice memo. And, and that's what's in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love how many little rent Easter eggs are also sprinkled throughout the movie. Um, I, I think that when I heard his answering machine's messages speak, I let out a sound that <laughs> I haven't made before. Yeah, and he and he refers to Michael as Pookie the moment he walks into the mm -hmm. apartment. And he plays one song Glory for a moment. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's my favorite one because it's sort of like a, it has canonical repercussions. Like, oh, if Susan hadn't shown up at his apartment that day, would he have written one song glory <laughs> that night? It would be a piece of superbia. So we kind of create a little like Marvel what if in that moment by having him get as far as the opening chords and get interrupted. Oh, that's funny. I hadn't thought about it like that. I mean, in general, your reaction to this material now, uh, having made the movie, I mean, how, how do you think that your feelings about Tick, Tick, Boom have changed in the 20 years since you saw it for the first time? They've, they've only intensified. You know, I think one of the, one of the journeys I went on in, in navigating and interrogating this material was, and the thing I think I love about it now on at the other side of 40, um, again, we're making 30, 90 when I am 40 in 2020. Are you uh, like, calm down, you'll be fine? <laughs> <laughs> not not only calm down, you'd be fine, um, but also this is not the story of someone writing their masterpiece. This is the story of someone recovering from failure. And failure is what we experience the most as artists. Um, not always spending our 20s on a musical that no one will ever make, although sometimes it's that. But how do you get back up and how do you make the next thing? And I think that is universal. And that's what Jonathan was processing. And he needed to write Tick, Tick, Boom to process the loss of superbia and clear his mind and his heart to create rent. And so literally the the existence show is because Jonathan needed to make room for the next great thing. And I think that's a lesson I try to take into my life as I, I'm talking to you about Tick, Tick, Boom. I have another movie I've spent five years writing the score for in Gunthal that comes out the week after because pandemic shifted everything to the same time. And next year I have an empty desk for the first time in six years. And what am I going to make? And what am I going to be when I am staring at that empty page? I, I have no plans, um, but I take inspiration from Jonathan in like getting back up and making the next thing. All right. Well, that does it for us this week. We hope everyone has a great holiday. 
as ever, you can follow us on Little Gold Men. You can text us uh, by going to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen, or you can text 213-401-9739. We're entering a busy time where there are a lot of, you know, a lot of new things to talk about, but um, eventually we will reach a point where we really have to kind of dig deep into this year's list of contenders. So any suggestions you guys have, um, please do send them to subtext. Um, you can find us personally online. I'm at Rylaws and Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. David. David Canfield, 97. As ever, this episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of someone in your life who isn't listening to Little Gold Men goes to David Canfield. The friend might be a little crazy. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.